Those of you that like titles and everything, I've titled this lesson this evening, Celebrate Jesus. So, now I know for many of us here this evening, the thought of celebrating the birth of Jesus on any other day than December 25th is really, really weird. So anybody you meet and you tell them you're celebrating Christ's birth today, they look at you and, mm-hmm. So, perhaps we are looking for the lights, the trees, perhaps the candy canes, gingerbread houses, a little fat guy, you know, white beard, red and white suit, perhaps. So, but uh, many of you probably have had that in your childhood. I know I did. Uh, so to come away from that is uh, quite a change, especially as a young child. You just don't quite understand. So what I'd like to discuss this evening, if we can, is why do we celebrate Jesus at this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles? Why do we celebrate it at the Feast of the Tabernacles? Now... First of all, I'd like to state that the, uh, at the Church of Israel, we seek to be Biblicist. Now, basically what that means is we seek to interpret the Holy Bible literally, to read it and do what it says. So, first thing we would have to do then is we'd have to start with a Bible standard. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we all have to agree on one and use it. Uh, it's kind of like if uh, you send all the guys over there to the volleyball court with a pickleball rule book. And then send the other half of the guys over there to the pickleball with a volleyball rule book. It makes the game a little more difficult, does it not? Trying to come in agreement what's right and what's wrong. So we have to agree on the Bible that we're going to use. Now, for the Church of Israel here and myself and my family and everything like that, the Bible standard that we hold and use is the King James Version of Bible. And that's what Pastor Dan has taught us too, and uh, Mr. Benson as well. And that's what we seek to use here at the Church of Israel. That way we're all on the same page. It's a lot easier for agreement and unanimity on any type of scripture reading that you have because someone is reading the same thing you are. So, and that, that helps a whole lot. Now, that being said, we're not against any other Bibles that come from that same family tree. So it's not like we're trying to establish the King James Version of Bible as absolutely without a doubt, you've got to read just this and everything. Even Pastor himself, and I know Mr. Benson as well, and Mr. Clark here is, you read the other versions sometimes to get different interpretations, one might say, of what has been stated, but you still stick with the, the original text that you had. It just helps to amplify perhaps what, what you're reading. But nothing will divide a church or a home faster than if you all have different versions of your Bible. It, there is no way you can come to an agreement. There just isn't. Uh, it, it, it automatically puts you at odds against each other. So as I stated, the King James Version of Bible is what we have here at the COI. Now, so now that we've established what our Bible is that we're going to use, we have to determine who this book is written to. And if you would, I'd like you to open to Genesis chapter 5, and we'll look at verse 1 here. Genesis chapter 5. For those of you that may be a little new to your Bible, that's the first book. So <laughs> it's one even I can find quickly. So in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Well, I believe that pretty well sums it up. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, we can go ahead and read on there. It says, in the day that God created Adam and the likeness of God made he him. So the question I would have is if everyone is from Adam, why would you need a book for his generations? If everyone is from Adam, 
Why would you need a book for his generations? Because wouldn't there only be his then? And therefore, there wouldn't be any reason to specify. But instead, it states specifically here, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, obviously, we're in the Old Testament. So how would, could, what would be a fast way to be able to tie the, the old to the new? Well, if you would, if you would open your Bibles again. Now we'll go to the New Testament. And if you would, take it and open it to Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Now, we're not for the sake of time. I'm not going to read any of that. But uh, I'd like you to have at least open. Maybe you'll peruse through it while I'm up here. And that is the genealogy that is spoken of, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And what I would like to point out here is it goes from Jesus to Adam. Takes it all the way back to Adam. So the next question that I would have is, is if Jesus is sent to save the world, why would genealogy matter? Amen. Why be so specific? Yeah. You wouldn't need to if you're here to save the world. I mean, what, why would genealogy matter? It wouldn't matter at all. So the next question I guess I would like to raise here is now, Surely all of us, I mean, maybe I should have a show of hands here. How many of you know the story of Ruth and Boaz? Okay, how many don't know the story of Ruth and Boaz? That might be a better sentence. Okay, well, I'll sum it up here. It's in the book of Ruth, in case you need a refresher there. Now, that is found in the Old Testament. And basically, um, it's about a lady that loses her husband, is very fond of her mother-in-law, goes with her mother-in-law back to the country where the mother-in-law was from, because they weren't in that country at the time. They'd moved out, I believe, from remembering correctly, due to famine. And she goes back because she's lost her husband with her mother-in-law, meets a guy. He's what's called a kinsman redeemer. And basically he gets her family's land back, which would have been her husband's land back, by marrying Ruth and redeeming the property. Uh, to better understand how all that works and everything, you can actually go to Leviticus chapter 25. And it's Basically, the, the summation of it is the story of what is called a kinsman redeemer. So by definition, a kinsman redeemer was someone who redeemed what was lost. Now, this could be the other person's property. It could be their freedom or even their name. Now, the kinsman might also be called upon to exact revenge on someone who has killed their relative. So in short, a kinsman was a rescuer and a restorer. So... Now, this was not a passive obligation, uh, nor was it something that should be entered into lightly. Uh, one way to look at this, I guess, to make it show how uh, important it is, is Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. But uh, the question I guess we would also have to ask is, okay, Jesus Christ is a kinsman redeemer, but to whom is he a kinsman redeemer? Now, to be a kinsman redeemer, there were four requirements that had to be met. Now, you had to be kin. I, how many of you understand what kin is? Okay. All right. Well, Joshua looks a little confused there. Josh, what, do you have kin here sitting with you? You do? Okay. Well, I, I have kin as well. So, all right. The only way you could be a kinsman redeemer was that you had to be of the same family. There had to be some relational tie. Now, I'd like to think of it as you would, is that you had to be the same kind. So someone from another family could not bring about the redemption because they were of a different kind. 
I could not redeem, let's see, I could not redeem Paul because I'm not Paul's kind. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounded better in my head earlier, but... Um, <laughs> But the point I guess I would be trying to make is that Paul and I are, well, we may be genetically rated very, very distant, but as far as on the books of genealogy and such, especially those that were kept during the times of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we would not be of the same family. So, and that would, I would not be, Ken, I would not be able to redeem or buy back the lands that, that Paul had lost in a great farming accident. So, but not that he has, I'm just giving him a hard time there a little bit, but. Okay, so first of all, you had to be kin to be a kinsman redeemer. Well, secondly, what did you have to be? Willing. So it was your decision. You had to be willing, and much like we've seen in the story of Ruth and Boaz, I mean, she came to him, but it was his decision. So, now, the person who was the next redeemer in line in the story of Ruth and Boaz was simply not willing, sorry, to follow through with the redemption. And because basically for the person that was actually before him, closest to her in relation to be able to redeem the, the property for the family and such, was it would cost him more an expense to redeem it than it would to let someone else have it. So, and it would take from his family, so he opted out, which was his legal right to do. Now, he would catch some flack for doing that. Whenever you opt out, you're basically, you're not doing your family duty is what it was considered. So someone from another family could not bring about the redemption because they were of a different kind. Now, being willing is at the heart of what a kinsman redeemer is, the ability to willing to sacrifice one's own needs and, and desires. So let's move on here. Thirdly, you had to be able to redeem. Now, it's kind of like getting up to the counter and having all the uh, refreshments you want to have and then realizing you left your wallet in the car. <laughs> You've got a great desire, but you can't fulfill it. So you had to be able to redeem. Willingness alone was not enough to be a kinsman redeemer. You actually had to be able to follow through with that redemption. If you did not have the financial means to make the redemption, then you could not be the redeemer. It did not matter how good your intentions were. And fourthly, you had to pay the price in full. So it's much like, like I said, with the deal with the refreshments, you can't pull the change out of your pocket, slap five pennies up there and walk out with $3.50 worth of supplies. You have to pay the whole price. Now, there's no such thing as a partial redemption when it comes to being a kinsman redeemer. Unless the full price was paid, there was no redemption. It was truly, it's an all or nothing proposition. So, number one, Jesus became like us. That's John 1.14. And the word was flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So to become like us, made him of the kin. Secondly, Jesus was willing to do it. And we can reference John chapter 10, verse 18. And that states, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. 
Now, thirdly, Jesus was able to redeem. And we find that in Romans chapter 5, and that's in verses 18 through 19, which I'll read. And it said, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Many, not all. Fourthly, Jesus paid the price, the complete price for our sin. And if we would, let's go ahead and uh, open up to Titus. We'll go to Titus chapter 2. Read some verses in Titus chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 and 14 of Titus chapter 2. And this pertaining to Jesus paying the complete price for our sin. And it states in Titus 2, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, I suppose we should really try and identify this people Israel. We see it a lot in the scriptures, and we pretty well determine that Christ is a kinsman redeemer, but then we also need to determine well, exactly who is Israel. And that's one of the biggest hurdles that one would need to overcome. Now, when it says that people Israel, it's a people, not a nation. Now, I know that today many believe that in Israel, over there in the little country, that's where the, the people that Christ has spoken of are, and that is, well, let's just look and see if that's true or not. So if we could, let's turn to Genesis chapter 17. Now, I'm sure many of you good Bible students are very familiar with this chapter. In Genesis chapter 17, we basically have the, the Abrahamic covenant. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read some verses here. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says, When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy, name shall be, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Now granted, he's speaking unto someone that has no children. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, a very old person, might I add, with no children. So... It'd be like pastor being told he's going to have another child. Except this person's even older than pastor, isn't he? So, not saying that that isn't possible. And with God, all things are possible. But we do need to look at the reality of the situation. Abraham was very old, but yet he believed God. And this is the faith. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make thee nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. An everlasting is always perpetual forever, without end. An everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee 
and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting, meaning forever, always covenant. So if we believe the scriptures and everything, that, would that mean that that would still be going today? Has time ended? Is this covenant null and void? No. So what I'd like to do now is how, how being as we've seen the genealogy of Christ, we know Abraham's in it. And we also know David's in it. And for many of us here, we know the other scriptures that there are concerning King David. But uh, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, if we would. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 12, and I'll talk about the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 12, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, he's speaking to David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. Now he's speaking of Solomon building the house. That is, if we remember from the scriptures, David desired greatly to build this house. And he was told, no, he had too much blood on his hands. So it was going to be up to his son. So being the good father that he was, he sought in trying to lay up all the supplies that his son would need to be able to accomplish this task. He had vision for the future, a generational vision. So he didn't whine and dine himself to death. He put it up for the next generation. So now kids don't get any ideas, but uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. I think that's very important words there. If we look here is that the mercy shall not depart from him. And then uses Saul to show that Saul's, God's mercy departed from Saul, but it would not from Solomon. And he says, in thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, according to all these words and according to all this vision, this is what Nathan the prophet did speak unto David. Now, it does not take much study for those of you that like to study and such. If you get on the internet and there's a lot of, of books and such that are out there as well to trace the monarchy that is in Great Britain back to King David. I mean, the records are there. You can, you can trace everything back to King David. Now that being established is saying that his throne shall be established forever, that his throne still stands. The Davidic covenant is established forever. So the question I would have for each and every one of us is seeing then that Jesus is a kinsman redeemer of the line of David and tracing David's descendants to the monarchy still in Britain, doesn't that point to the people that were needing redeemed? Now, identifying Israel then would be alive and well today. So if the purpose was to redeem the world, there is no need of kinship. No need for the lineage of Joseph and Mary. So if Jesus was a kinsman redeemer, does that mean that there are some that aren't kinsmen? 
If we could, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, and I'll start reading here in verse 1. Romans 9, verse 1. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and a continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is very important, kinsmen according to the flesh. Not a spiritual kinsman, or anything, a kinsman according to the flesh. The flesh is a direct relationary kinsman. Now, and he goes on to say, who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are concern, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. We have to remember that Hagar was also married to Abraham, had Ishmael. So there's those line of people too, that seed line. But it states here, in Isaac shall the seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, as we all know, the promise was given to Abraham with Rebekah. Sarah, yes, I thought... I seen Rebecca in a hut. That wasn't right. So thank you. Being quite the Berean there. I appreciate that. So, so is at this time, the word of promise at this time, will I come and Sarah shall have a son. If I'd have just read a little further, I wouldn't have had that stumble there. And not only this, but when Rebecca had also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Yeah. Now, in the Isaac, shall thy seed be called, seems to be getting really, really specific. And it also says that you can be, one can be Israel, but not of Israel. Matthew 20, 15, 24, we have Christ's own words where he said, but he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Amen. And those were the words of Christ himself. So the Bible you hold in your hand is a family book. Amen. The covenants, the promises and the adoption are yours. Now, in being you are the inheritor of the book and the covenants and promises, shouldn't we read and follow the teachings of the Bible? Now, we can't use the instruction manual of a car to fly an airplane. At least I can't. Anybody here can? No takers. Okay. So this Bible is an instruction, a manual instruction, a manual for life itself, actually. Now, as pastor stated this morning... We have appointed times by God to gather and worship. And that comes from his word, this book written to his people. And if we hereby ascertain that 
we are that people, that it's important then that we seek to find what his appointed times that he would desire for us to gather together are. Now, what month was Jesus born in? Now this, I tell you what, you do a little bit of Google search on that and you'll get more answers than you ever wanted to have. So, Now there's a lot of good men that have a lot of, I think, they're, they're very well thought out. These aren't just somebody that come up with an idea and everything like that. They're truly trying to look to determine without beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the day, this is the year, this is the month. Now, when we look at the story of Jesus, when he was born, we often think of the shepherds in the fields watching over their flocks. And we know that this should, obviously this was spoken of, that this can give us some types of evidence. Now, the biggest question that arises is, is were the flocks in the fields around the time of our modern day Christmas, December 25th? And quite honestly, you'll have those that say yes. They say, and, and I looked, looked it up just to make sure I wasn't being led astray and such. I have a little bit of time here to digress on this. There is a certain line of sheep that has been bred for that area that actually lambs in December. Now, that being said, their assumption is, is that when the shepherds were in the field keeping watch over their flocks, it was because they were watching for lambing season. But then again, you're in the same problem as a lot of other people. That's assuming. There's no proof of that. Now, I myself don't hold to that. Um, but um, let's go ahead and read that, actually. If you would turn to Luke chapter 2. Probably had to read that into the record here, not just think I'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with that story, but I don't want anybody to think that I'm pulling it out of thin air here. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Now, there is a, uh, there's a Bible commentator by the name of Adam Clark. I believe he lives in the 15, or not 15, sorry, the 1800s. And so I don't think he was a relative of Mr. Clark's uh, family here. I don't, are you related, Nathan? No? Okay. All right. But anyways, he says that it, it was customary for the people of that time to send their sheep to pasture from the spring until early October. Now, he said, as the cold winter months began, the flocks would return from the fields for shelter and warmth. And that seems a lot more plausible to me uh, because in December, it can, the weather can get very nasty and wet. Uh, not necessarily extremely cold, but in the mountains and such, you know, where a lot of times they had their flocks and were feeding them, that's when they would get snow. So, and they also start having a lot of really harsh frosts. What a harsh frost do for anybody that has cattle or sheep or anything like that, you know, what is frost due to grass. It kills it, you know, and then it's not palatable. Nothing's going to eat it. So you would bring them in closer to the towns for, for wintering and such. And that's why they would have been just outside of Bethlehem. Once again, as I stated, that's my assumption, just like the other people have their assumption. We both feel like we have facts that, that back it up, but it's still an assumption. And I have to state that. Now, 
He concluded that the angels announced the news of Jesus' birth no later than October. So, what are some other clues, I guess we could say, concerning Jesus' birthday? Now, we can find some additional clues to the answer to this question of when was Jesus really born by looking at the birth of John the Baptist. Now, Luke 1, for those of you that want to turn there, tells of Zacharias, who was from the priestly order of Abijah, and his barren wife, Elizabeth. Now, it speaks of Elizabeth becoming pregnant with John the Baptist after his days of service in the temple. And this is a lot of times where if you're trying to build a timeline on something, you have to try and take tidbits out of Scripture that you can tie to specific dates and build from that. Now, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it says that Gabriel visited Mary with the news that she would give birth to Jesus. So the approximate month of Jesus' birth can thus be determined by counting from the date of Zacharias' priestly service until the birth of Jesus. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, if you would, let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and let's just look at these priestly orders of Abijah. In Luke, or sorry, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and we will begin, and let's see, in verse 6 through 19. And I know all of you are probably impressed thinking I'm going to read all these names, but uh, no. You can read them yourself. <laughs> but the point that I am seeking to make here is that this speaks of all the orders of the priests. There were 12 orders. They took two turns each, so that would... Or am I right there? Uh, there's 24, there was 24 courses. That's what it was, 24. Sorry, I had my math wrong there. There's 24 courses, basically groups. They would take a week at a time, and they took two different times throughout the year. Now, I realize for all of us that can do math, wait a minute, that's 48 weeks. There's four left over. So there are some that say that, well, they just started over. And that's a whole different camp. There are some that state that it was optional and it was worked out year by year, different groups. And that's what I'm going to lean towards. I have read quite a bit of information from, from some, some gentlemen that have done a, a lot of research. And they state, basically, they came to the belief that Christ was born on March 20th. I believe it was uh, 6 B.C., and in doing that, they were trying to use this here, but they basically stated that every course, whenever they got to the end of the 48 courses, you know, at the end of the year, they still had four more. They just started with the first ones again so that they tried working back all the shifts in the times that it would have continued on. But that being stated, he was in the 10th priestly cycle week. And the start of that 10th week for Zacharias would have been, according to the calculations of, of those that I've, I've studied and followed, would have been in the month of Savon. And that runs approximately from mid-May to mid-June. Now, soon after Zechariah Zechariah, sorry, returned from his priestly duties, it says Elizabeth become pregnant with John the Baptist. Now, I don't think he walked through the door and it happened. I mean, that, that's just... I mean, some of you guys may get greeted that way, but uh, most likely not. So, but that being said, it was still rather quickly. So, now 
let's, uh, if we would, turn back to, let's go to, for another reference here, let's go to Luke chapter 1, and I'll read some 24 and 28 and 31. Basically, it says, now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, thus the Lord hath dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among man, men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And behold, skimming forward, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. So, back to the date of Jesus' birth. Therefore, according to the text of, that I have just spoken of, we can approximate the month of Jesus' birth to be around the time of what is called Tishri, and that would be mid to late September. Now, to arrive at this date, I had to start at the conception of John the Baptist, which was in Savannah in June, and of course count forward six months to arrive at Gabriel's announcement of the conception, conception of Jesus, and that's considered Kislev, December. And some scholars believe it happened during the Festival of Lights or the Festival of Dedication. Now, are you all familiar with what that is called nowadays? Hanukkah, yes. But, and that being stated, that's just an assumption on our part. But if you count forward nine more months after that, the time takes for human gestation and such. You reach Tishri, September, when Jesus was born. So... The exact date of Jesus' birth may not be known. Now, we can rest assured that Jesus died for our sins, most definitely. In Galatians 3, verse 13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Rose again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 6, I'll read that into the record here as well. It says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that He was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, and that He will come back, and that He will one day come back. We also have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And it says, Brethren, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. For those of you that like commentators on scripture and Bible and stuff, I'll read what Matthew Henry, or very many of you familiar with Matthew Henry, I would assume, he wrote this, and this is what he stated concerning this. He said, It is supposed by many that our blessed Savior was born much about the time of this, this holiday, the Feast of Tabernacles. Then he left his mansions of light above to tabernacle among us. And he was referencing John chapter 1, verse 14. 
and he dwelt in booths. And the worship of God under the New Testament is prophesied of under the notion of keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that he referenced Zechariah 14, verse 16. And he says, the gospel of Christ teaches us to dwell in tabernacles, to sit loose to this world as those that have here no continuing city, but by faith and hope and holy contempt of present things to go out to Christ without the camp. And he's referenced in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And we also have another man by the name of John Gill. And he had, uh, he references John chapter one, verse 14. And he speaks of, and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us in an allusion to the tabernacle, which was a type of Christ's human nature. The model of the tabernacle was of God and not of man. It was coarse without, but full of holy things within. Here God dwelt, granted his presence and his glory was seen. Here the sacrifices were brought, offered and accepted. So the human nature of Christ was of God's pitching and not man's. And though it looked mean without, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in it, as well as the fullness of grace and truth. And in the face of Christ, the glory of God is seen, and through him, even the veil of his flesh, saints have access unto him and enjoy his presence. And by him, their spiritual sacrifices become acceptable to God. Or this is observed in allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Israelites dwelt in booths in remembrance of their manner of living in the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles was atypical of Christ and of his tabernacling in our nature. And Solomon's temple, which was also a type of Christ, was dedicated at the time of that feast. And it seems probable that our Lord was born at that time. For as he suffered at the time of the Passover, which had respect unto him, and the pouring forth of the Spirit was on the very day of Pentecost, which that prefigured. So it is highly probable that Christ was born at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which pointed out to his dwelling among us, and therefore very pertinently hinted at when mention is made here of his incarnation. However, reference is manifestly had to the Shekinah and the glory of it in the tabernacle and temple, and almost the very word is here used. So I guess one, if we were to speak in summation of this, I would say that if the exact date were really important, God would have provided the information in his word, and he didn't. Perhaps because all of his appointed days had already had it covered. Now, I do recognize on a high point of the world that because of December 25th Christmas celebrations, there is a worldwide witness of Jesus Christ. That is what that day has been set aside for. Now, I disagree with the functions that may happen and the paganism that has been attached to it. <laughs> but I also have to acknowledge that that is a physical when it comes to a representation that the world, all the world would be able to know of Jesus Christ, that day would stand as well, I believe. Now, many of us do have that day off and spend it with family. Now, I could digress into all the different customs that I believe. You know, we could go into Jeremiah 11, which speaks to the trees and such. <clears throat> and that's for every man to make up for himself. Here at the... Uh, Church of Israel, it is something the pastor has taught us is wrong, and it is something that we seek to hold to with one another. 
But I also realize that keeping the Feast of Tabernacles doesn't increase my salvation. Doesn't make me any better than any of the brethren. It is to me as a biblicist an appointed time for me to meet with my kinsmen. Now, how can we ever expect to see the fullness of God in our lives if we don't meet with Him on His set times? If we look back to the tabernacles, there were times when they could move. And I should say, the pillar of fire would guide them. And if there wasn't a cloud, they couldn't go forth. I mean, there was appointed times and they had to obey when God desired for them to move out of Egypt. So... Imagine planning a family reunion and setting the date and a year advance and your children finding it not important, even enough to attend. So, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you all in? Imagine His sacrifice. Imagine leaving the glory of heaven to save you and I. And God is so merciful despite our rejection of Him. Now this year, we need to think upon Jesus, His sacrifice, and His mercy. Ask yourself, how can I live like He lived? And how can I share this message of redemption, of salvation, with those around me? Fellow Israelites, let us celebrate Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time this evening.